0: Welcome to truth and learning. Hey, Will, how are you? I'm good. Excellent. Excellent. How was the past couple weeks?
1: weeks? Uh, just completely harrowing.
0: Really? Why? You lost your hair. I, I can see that you no longer have hair. What I, happened? I have hair. Ah, Yes, I see two strands left
1: oh, I gotta, on I your hit.
0: chin. It's on your chin. No, it's
1: just the lighting. It's the lighting in the room, man.
0: Yeah. You're getting up to – dude, we're doing repartee. This is rapport I, I, building. I'm going to fix
1: the lighting so you can see my hair. Is that better?
0: <laughs> no, you're still bald. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not bald.
0: You're as bald as me. No. You're you are like uh, – I'm like uh, – you're like, oh, who's the tall one? in Laurel and Hardy was Hardy the tall one in 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 Laurel the fat one or the other way around Laurel was the skinny one you're like Laurel and I'm like Hardy too much Helen Hardy Laurel and Hardy you don't know I, Laurel and Hardy I do yeah 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 but nobody else is going to know that oh my gosh that's horrible there's a new movie out actually that's a, like a biopic about the two of them it's wonderful it's oh. called St- Stan and What was Laurel's? Stan Laurel and something Hardy. So Stan and whatever Hardy's first name was.
1: Is this like repartee? We're supposed to have this?
0: Yes. This is like in the handbook for podcasting. You have to do funny repartee. We haven't elevated to the level of funny yet, but over time we're getting there.
1: Okay. So repartee.
0: Yes. So um, not on this episode, but Clark Quinn is going to join us uh, on the next episode, right? Anyway, so uh, Clark, Clark was so funny. He's like, it's about time. And uh, so I wrote him back and said, we, well, we, we wanted to make sure we were getting better at this before we had you on. And he said, oh, yeah, good point. He bought that. <laughs> yeah. <huh>? <laughs> so <laughs> Another lie from the Truth and Learning <laughs> Podcasters. We don't lie. We adapt, overcome, and improvise you know the movie that's from no Clint Eastwood heartbreak Ridge uh, he didn't cheat he overcame he adapted he improvised one of the greatest movies do you ever. you do ever.
1: impressions
0: no do, do you think there's no way I do impressions first of all I have a face for radio oh no. I cannot have an no. impression you got to have a good face to have an impression anyway So, usually I tell people what we're going to talk about. This time, why don't you? Okay.
1: We're going to start out talking about creativity and whether there's a place for us as learning professionals to utilize or to create. Can I use that word? No, I can't use that word. To embody our training, to enable our learners to have creative insights. And so we might get it some questions like this: Is your job to train ideas or to enable ideas? Can we train people to be more creative? Can anyone be creative or only experts? Are people creative on their own, or is there a social aspect to creativity? Is there more to creativity than generating ideas? Can we just ask people to be more creative? Does that work? Should we reward creative behaviors or not? Can online learning perhaps induce more creativity?
0: This segment sounds like it's guaranteed to be our least practical segment ever.
1: Whoa, no way.
0: (laughs) You're right. We've had more segments that were way less pragmatic.
1: (laughs) No, this is completely pragmatic.
0: All right, we'll see we'll see. We'll see how pragmatic creativity is. Hey, I'm not a creative guy i, I I'm one of those guys you know'm I'm, I'm into the pragmatic side of things you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll do a personality test
1: later. Oh no. <laughs> I told you you weren't allowed to mention that for three episodes at least.
0: Personality I didn't mention disc.
1: Oh no. <laughs> All right, what's our second segment? Our second segment. Well, this is one that you want to have us do, and it's on coaching. And you'd like to make the case that coaching or a particular type of coaching is no damn good. And then I I don't know what you're going to say, but I'm going to try to coach you either way.
0: <laughs> this is exactly my problem with coaching. <laughs> and what's and our finally, third segment?
1: Our, and then finally our third segment we are going to have a legend in the learning to performance field. Dr. Roger Kaufman is going to join us and he's going to talk about the concept of mega and about societal uh results or societal impact. And uh it's fantastic. I was able to interview him and uh, just, he is oozing with wisdom. Roger's one
0: of the greats. So I'm glad we were able to get him on the show. So thank you for making that happen.
1: Well, it, you know, it's, uh, it's really a credit to Roger.
0: Cool. All right, let's move in. So creativity.
1: Okay. So first I'm going to, I'm going to blow your mind, right? So there's two types of learning. And I'm oversimplifying, of course, but there's transfer learning and there's insight learning. Now transfer learning is what we're used to. This is when information, concepts, ideas are transferred from one person, from the trainer to the learners, or from some body of knowledge, some materials to the learners. That's transfer, so you're transferring ideas into the learners right now insight learning is completely different so where transfer learning you're taking concepts and transferring them in whole in insight learning you're taking like two concepts and these concepts move into a learner's a person's working memory and they're not connected there okay because that would be a transfer kind of thing but they're there in working memory and they get connected in some way. And because you connect them, you have an insight. So a great example of this is, uh, I think it was Sir Isaac Newton. And if you remember, he was looking at, uh, an apple and it dropped from a tree and he had this insight, Eureka, he yelled. And, the insight was about, oh my gosh, bodies fall, there must be some force called gravity. And so that's okay. insight learning. Now, related to this is the concept of creativity because creativity is about generating insights, enabling people to have these creative insights. And creativity is about more than that, but it's about that as well. How does that sound for a segment?
0: Can I, uh, can I summarize what I understand you said? Sure. Okay, so I have one idea, uh, a concept. Uh, that concept might be a policy. It might be a procedure. It could be uh, a rule. It could be uh, information needed to uh, do a skill. And traditionally, uh, the transfer of that idea goes from you, the trainer, to me in some fashion that's the transfer uh, of an idea, correct? Correct. Okay. Now let's say I get two ideas, two principles, two concepts from you as my trainer and inside me, I synthesize those two things into some new construct. And that is putting those two ideas together is an insight. Absolutely.
1: So let's use some examples. Okay. So let's say I'm in a training Mm -hmm. and um, you are talking about uh, rewards. Okay. Right. You've talked about those. Yep. And you're talking, you're trying to talk to me about how to use rewards in my role as a manager. But because you're talking about this, so this reward idea goes into my working memory. And you know, you're sort of, you warned me with this idea that rewards aren't always good, rewards can backfire. So that's in my working memory. But also, because I'm a father, um, I'm thinking about my daughter. And all of a sudden, I go, oh, my gosh, I have been rewarding her for doing her homework. And that's a terrible thing because now she's just going to see homework as this instrumental activity, and it's going to ruin her life because she's never going to want to learn on her own. So I've now had this insight and connected Mm. these things in working memory, and then they can move to long-term memory, and then I can go and take an action and try to undo the damage that I have done.
0: Got it. Okay. Now, how does this relate to creativity?
1: Creativity is about generating ideas where one did not exist before. So it's along the same line.
0: So in other words, um, creativity is really the act of creating insights among desperate ideas.
1: Well, okay. So let me define insight learning to you so a cr- num- there's four steps a creative insight occurs in a person's working memory and then that person has to remember or be reminded of that insight later because if you have the insight but it disappears like let's say i was in your workshop and i had that idea about my daughter and the rewards, but i forgot about it. that wouldn't be any good so that's number two the person has to probably be reminded or, is this you know, why
0: teachers often say take notes Yes, it is. Okay.
1: And then step three is the person has to see this insight as important in supporting one of their goals. So my goal is to be a good parent and help my daughter have a good life, right? And so because of that, I'm going to then use this information. And then four, that person has to be motivated to put that insight into action. So just to restate these, you have to have creative insight and working memory. You got to probably be reminded of it. You probably have to see it as important. And then you have to be motivated to actually take the next step and put that insight into action.
0: Okay. Got it. So relating this back to creativity in general, where do we take this idea next?
1: Let me give you an example. There's creativity researchers and they now have a three-part definition of what creativity is. Would you like to hear it? Yes, I would. Okay creativity creative ideas have to be number one novel, original, distinctive somehow. So if you and I have the same idea and same idea with everybody else, that's not a creative idea. They also have to be high quality. You know, you just can't like, "Oh, wow, zebras are black and white. So is my, you know, hot chocolate or something like that." You know, you got to they got to be useful. And they have to be, number three, appropriate to the task at hand, right? They have to be high quality in a way that they can be used. So it's not just being, it's not just coming up with crazy ideas. It's coming up with high quality ideas that can be used. So we're doing a training and we are just stuffing people with information. theres They're taking notes. They're just writing stuff down, they're trying to comprehend all the things we're giving them, there's probably no time for them to have creative insights or to remember them. So maybe we could do something to enable that kind of creativity to come out. And uh, is creativity
0: something that we always have to have? Is creativity a required component to uh, applying what one learns?
1: No, absolutely not. Creativity is not a requirement, but it is an opportunity for us in the learning field. If you've got two learning architects and one designs to enable people to have a skill and to use it, and the other one does the same thing but also enables people to think creatively about that, the person that's got the more creative, inducing learning architect is going to probably do their job better. And
0: that can also open the door to uh, greater applications back on the job. It can open the door toward uh, how people then develop their own folks back on the job. If they're in a managerial role, the, the cascading consequences of this uh, are, are multitudinous.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Before we start recording, you posed a whole bunch of different questions about creativity
1: that I thought were quite intriguing for us to talk about. What was the first one? So one of the questions is, is it our job to train ideas or to enable ideas? I have no idea. What's the difference? Well, if you train ideas, you just tell them what it is. If you enable ideas, you allow them to think on their own.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to go with enable ideas because that kind of feels like a no-shit Sherlock moment.
1: Okay, great.
0: Is that what you were looking for?
1: That's perfect. Okay.
0: <laughs> Just play along, Matt. I don't want any creativity here. I'm sorry. I didn't know what you wanted me to say.
1: <laughs> all right. Can we train? Here's a question number two. Can we train people to be more creative? No. Why not?
0: Creativity. So, so first of all, has anyone defined clearly what creativity mechanically means? inside the person like what what buttons need to be pushed to be creative and what creativity looks like how do we measure creativity that's that's my first tier of of answering this my second tier is how much of being creative is an ability uh, where you're born with a certain level of capacity to be creative and then you're done versus how much of creativity is a competency whether it's really made up of a whole bunch of different skills and pieces of knowledge and, and the cumulative, cumulative effect of it all is creative. I don't know. And so until I have a better answer, I'm going to say, no, it's, we it, can't really train people to be more creative until we know more of what we're training.
1: Okay. So let me first say, I'm going to shoot a hole in the first part of your answer. Go ahead. It's very clear, and researchers have been able to do this, about how you define creativity. We already talked about it. Do the ideas that are created, are they novel, original, distinctive? Are they high quality? Are they appropriate to the task at hand? Those things, Okay. Those so are is it, Is
0: it novel if I come up with it and didn't know someone else did? No. Right. So it's not creative, but then how do I know that? How do you well, train we, someone to come up with a novel idea that no one else has?
1: No, but you—you said, Matt, you're confusing things. Look, <laughs> the, you said it was you, you said we can't define what creativity is, and I'm telling you, these are the criteria, and they're easy to create. Uh, okay. Now, the second part of your answer, where you said this is a, creativity is a trait and it's not a skill. Well, you're partly right. The research. Thank you. <laughs> Don't talk over me. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm going ra- to raise my hand when you go out and
0: speak. Yeah, I want, I want you to flash a light when I'm allowed to talk, okay? I think right, we've reached yeah. the point in our relationship where uh, we're no longer trying to be nice to each other.
1: <laughs> Certainly, some people are more creative than others, absolutely. But that's not the question. The question is, can we train creativity? And the yeah. answer is Absolutely. People can be trained to be more creative. So, so how would you do that? Well, I think using creativity training would be good. <laughs> I hope you all saw the eye roll there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll get in that's a whole nother episode. Let's, no, I
0: think it's really pertinent to this episode for you too. If you're well, saying people can be trained,
1: yeah. How, well, we're gonna let's get to that at the end. All right. Okay. All right. So what's the next question? Next question is, can anyone be creative or only experts? Obviously, you want me to say anyone. Why, why do you think that? <laughs> Did I hold up my hand? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to say you want me to say anyone, but I kind of feel like you got to be an expert for the insights to be made between two ideas. Brilliant. brilliant.
1: You, you are brilliant. Once again, that's why I'm doing this that. podcast with you. Oh, thank you. Because, you know, if you think about the definition for creativity, that it has to not only be a unique idea, but that it has to be high quality, right? Who's going to know that? Novices? Anybody off the street? No. It's going to take an expert uh, to know that.
0: Which is why the novel idea... Uh, would be indeed novel if an expert knows what's already out there. If I'm not an expert, I can't know what's already out there.
1: Absolutely. In fact, you know, some of the most annoying people in the world <laughs> Look in the are people who uh, come up with a lot of wild ideas that are not useful or they're not high quality and you can see them all over LinkedIn, right? So now, whoa, you know, and they write books on learning and they drive me nuts. But anyway, so you got to have some expertise. Now, there's a trick to this, though. If you want to be creative, should you study in one field alone? Should you become an expert in that field?
0: So as a liberal arts guy, I would say no. I would say be becoming well-versed in multiple st- Uh, fields is way more helpful. Uh, For example, being an historian who's familiar with cultural studies and uh, uh, comparative literature and uh, different languages is going to be way more instructive than if you are only an expert in
1: a specific area of history. Absolutely. So the answer is yes and no. You need (laughs) To drill down in one area and be an expert in it to be truly creative, but you can't do that as the only thing you do. You also have to go tangentially to fields that are outside of your own field.
0: Okay. All right, good. What's the next one? I'll get one of these right.
1: You got that one right.
0: Oh, okay. You said yes and no. So I, I, I said you were brilliant. Uh, that was the previous one. Well,
1: I am brilliant anyway. Who's the producer? <laughs> oh. Oh, we, we 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 ramped up to 30 people listening in. We could afford a producer now.
0: Hey, that's untrue. We have hundreds and hundreds of subscribers now. We do. We do. I'm so glad you go onto our our
1: dashboard and look. I don't care about that. I do. I know. That's why we get along so well. All right. Um, now, here's a question for you. Well, it's an obvious question. I I wrote it in a biased way. Are you ready?
0: But at least it was creative.
1: No, it wasn't. Is there more to creativity than generating ideas? Yes. <laughs> that would be a bad smile sheet question for anyone. Listening. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously there is. So you're not. If you think about what sort of some of the creative geniuses have had to do, they not only had to come up with a a novel idea that was high quality and that was relevant. They also had to then do what? They had to persuade other people. They had to persevere to get this thing to work, right? Uh, The Wright brothers, you know, we all think about that famous flight back in, what, 1903, 1906, somewhere in there. And that first flight was only a few minutes, and it took them – Another, I forget, like a couple of years to be able to have somebody uh, to have a passenger. And then, I think know? they
0: used their little sister. They did. I think so.
1: That sounds like a seductive detail. <laughs> I,
0: I think they did. I think they used their little sister.
1: Um, so it's it's uh, it, you know a lot of taking a creative idea and turning it in, into <clears throat> a lot of taking a creative idea and turning it into an innovation requires perseverance, uh, an iron will. Ah, hold on, on, hold on, hold on,
0: hold on. This is brilliant. So it's not creativity that's innovative. You have to take what you create and make it into something, and that's the innovation. Absolutely. So this I want to highlight because too many people, I think, conflate the concept of creativity
1: with innovation. They're not the same thing. I agree. You know, there's another aspect to this is kind of interesting as well. You know, when you come up with a creative idea, when you're in this sort of idea generating phase, there's a bunch of parts to it. One part is coming up with the idea and having the insight and working memory. But another part is accepting the idea, right? So you have to sort of be an expert in knowing whether the idea is good or not. But then there's this other social aspect to that process. Will other people think I'm completely out of my mind? So a lot of creativity is like having a thick skin and saying the hell with what they think. I know this is a good idea and I'm going to go forward. Velcro. Yeah.
0: The polio vaccine. Uh, how about the, the desktop computer?
1: How about sticky notes? Yeah. Post it. Uh, well, what well, you're, you're, so you're telling me that this really weak glue that doesn't hold on to anything is a good idea. Pa! And it doesn't take off paint. Yeah. That's right. All right. Let me ask you this. Can we just ask people to be more creative? Does that work? Would you, you know, If you're in a training or let's say you're a manager, uh, because one of our jobs as a learning professional is not only to f- create these formal learning events, but maybe also to support the organization and the organizational learning. So, so you want I'm me to manager, give an answer?
0: What's you that? asked the question, but then you answered it.
1: I'm not answering the question. I'm I'm, I'm motivating the question.
0: I have an answer. Well, wait. Oh, okay. Go on. (laughs) You didn't
1: raise your hand. Sorry. If I'm a manager and I want my team to be more creative, can I ask them to be more creative without work? Or is that like not really kind of workable? So I'm going to say yes and no. I'm going to say yes,
0: that sometimes stipulating a vision and, and a vision that no one knows how to get to can create a target that people then can believe is possible. And they can find a way. For example, there's a, a very famous activity uh, that trainers have been using for decades. Uh, it's the uh, balancing a whole bunch of roofing nails on one nail. Are you familiar with this? Is that the Dunker problem? I don't know what the Dunker problem refers to. So you take a bunch of roofing nails with big heads on the nail, right? And the idea is that you can balance about 30 of them on top of the head of one nail. And if you tell people, if you tell people, uh, how many do you think you can do? And you don't give them the possibility of 30, then they'll come up with two, they'll, they'll, predict that they can do maybe three. Someone in the room might be gutsy and say four or five, but you don't get much higher than that in terms of their prediction on what they're capable of doing. But then if you say, I can do 30, or if you go on the internet and get one personal look, they'll find that 30 or 40 are possible. And they tell everyone in the room, and now all of a sudden people start coming up with ways, they find a way, they come up with something innovative, creative that hadn't been thought of in the room yet uh, to be able to do it because it grounded a vision that was
1: possible. Okay, so this is really, you're really encouraging sort of stretch goals or to, to, to work beyond where you were. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's important. But I think there's another aspect to it as well. What's that? And that is creativity is sometimes an uncomfortable thing. And so when we ask people to be creative, we're giving them permission to be a little bit more wild, a little bit more outside the box, a little bit more out of the ordinary.
0: That sounds good. All right, let's do one more and then wrap it up. Move on to our next segment. Give me one last one. Okay,
1: well, this one is right in your ballpark. Should we reward creative behaviors or not?
0: Yes and no. If we want the creative behavior once, then reward all you want. If you have no expectation for creativity after that, go right ahead. If you want creative behaviors uh, to continue and and become better and more iterative over time, then rewarding can actually undermine. Uh, one's motivation intrinsically to, to be creative.
1: So I hope that was, uh, we weren't very creative about that. Uh, there's a lot more to creativity, but uh, that should give you a flavor. And, well, uh, Oh, you know what? We didn't do no, Matt?
0: No, what didn't we do?
1: We have to give people ideas for how to support other people in creativity.
0: Okay. All right. All right. I have one idea. Okay, great. Number one, Use activities that force people to quickly brainstorm and come up with ideas that solve problems and and, uh, brainstorm ways to create new products, whatever the context is. But use different types of activities. Don't just say, okay, folks, come up with an idea now, talk. Use activities that structure a process for, for brainstorming and trying to come up with creative ideas.
1: Great. So here's another one. Uh, Fatigue will impair working memory capacity. So we want to make sure that our learners, if we're going to send them into this activity, that they're not fatigued beforehand or any activity.
0: Okay, good. Uh, Another one is, I know it's a cliche, but when people throw out ideas, You can undermine creativity by saying, oh, that's stupid or that won't work. Or rolling your eyes, even if you don't physically say it. Uh, Just the the body language indicating your disapproval, your judgment of someone's idea
1: can undermine the creative moment. Great. Another thing to do is to be goal-focused. When people have goals to achieve something, then they're more likely to be creative around that goal achievement.
0: The idea of impossibility can undermine creativity. If I think it is impossible, I'm not going to feel capable of doing it. However, if you can authentically, authentically is very important, sincerely share that this is possible, we just don't know how yet,
1: then that can open the doors to a more creative environment. That's a good one. Uh, we already, we, we've already seen how fear of embarrassment can make people less creative. So we need to create a very safe space in our trainings or in our learning opportunities uh, to allow them to feel free, to be wild and come up with those ideas.
0: I find if you threaten people and tell them they're going to lose their job, if they're not going to be creative, works really well too. I'm kidding. Just that once. was just, just once. That's right. Just once. No, 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 no I'm kidding. Yeah. No. I just was building off of a will safety
1: notion. So, I mean, and there's lots of things you can do, right? Um, you can do some weird, if you want people to be creative, you do some weird stuff beforehand and it just sort of frees people up. Uh, if you're going to do brainstorming, have people brainstorm alone, not with each other. Now, maybe, at least first, get them to brainstorm alone and then maybe they can brainstorm together. Bring in diverse perspectives. Have people uh, read something that's sort of off-topic a little bit, tangential. Uh, maybe have different people read different things. You know, bring different perspectives to the to the work together. Um, you know, there's just there's so many things. This area of creativity goes really far. Um, You know, one of the things that I've encouraged people to do in my presentation science workshop is to think about not just doing transfer learning, but doing this insight learning as well. Okay, Will, let's move on to our next segment. Okay, now if I remember correctly, you were going to propose that coaching or some types of coaching are bad, and then I am supposed to react to that.
0: Yeah, so there's this movement I've been experiencing quite a bit, especially in France, probably less so in the U.S., which argues that a coach in in an L&D capacity is someone who should go on the journey with a client, facilitate dialogue, reflect the needs of the client, but lower her status enough so that she's viewed as a companion, and a, but not someone who's going to be directive or overly knowing about a subject, not someone who directs the client in any way, and doesn't provide any subject matter expertise unless putting on a completely different hat. And I find this to be slightly inane.
1: Well, wait a minute. Let me make sure I understand. Sounds like like this person's role is like a chaperone. I kind of feel like this is just a paid friend. Well... (laughs) So I mean, well, what is this? I mean, so you you've sort of laid this out in a, in a descriptive way, but can you make it concrete for us? Like, what would somebody actually do?
0: Well, this is what I've been trying to gather. So I don't oppose coaching. I find, that, uh, but I find coaching to be a technique. I'll, I'm going to answer your question, but let me give some context for it first. So to me, uh, a good manager is going to coach her employees on developing new skills, provide feedback, have conversations around development, and and so forth. These are coaching dialogues, coaching conversations. This is one function of a good manager. Uh, In an organization, a leader may coach uh, her executives uh, to think more strategically or to uh, have different types of conversations with their direct reports and so forth. Um, a sports coach of a football team, whether it's uh, football in Europe or American football in the U.S., coaches players to play a certain way uh, that aligns with his strategy for how to win and, and so forth. These are very directive and they employ different interpersonal techniques and tactics that make the coaching more or less effective. In uh, in the world of agility, especially it seems in France, uh, but elsewhere, there's this notion that you uh, want to help a person open up and find his or her own answers to solve problems and make change happen. Well, okay, but there are probably many other fields of study that maybe more conducive to doing this if that is indeed the solution to whatever problem you're facing, such as maybe a therapist or a friend, or it could be uh, that this is a technique that a manager might employ with the person who needs to be coached. But to have an entire profession of coaches whose sole job it is to to be a companion, uh, to help reflect back and facilitate they go through, uh, depending on the quality of their coaching program, they may go through anywhere from a two-week program and certification to a six-month or twelve-month certification. Uh, but these these coaching programs I find to be specious and problematic. Hmm. Uh, uh, I did some high-level searching to look at efficacy studies on coaching, and well. I haven't been very successful at finding coaching to be effective when defined this way because I haven't found any studies that even looked at it.
1: Well, what is the name? What's the label given to this type of coaching?
0: Hey, well, I'm having trouble with that as well. I'm having trouble when I keep asking the question, what do these coaches do that would make me want to pay for them? And who are these coaches and what is their role and how do I find one? They tend to all have the the word agile in front of them. So they are agile coaches or they are, I mean, life coaches I've seen. This this feels, it harkens back to me to the life coaching uh, industry. But um, I want to distinguish this greatly from what has traditionally been called performance coaching or business consulting and services like that, that I find are greatly useful and have found to be highly effective.
1: Well, I, I, I don't know enough to really, you know, go Can one I drop way the another? mic now.
0: No, I can't drop the mic now. No. Okay, sorry, go on.
1: you are got to stop
0: talking a, over
1: me, man. I'm going to raise
0: my hand now when you can talk, okay?
1: I'll raise my <laughs> hand, too. Just so you know, people, I just raised my finger, a middle one. So
0: It was his uh, middle thumb.
1: Thumbs up. Good job, Matt.
0: <laughs> um, this is the episode where we started to lose listeners.
1: Do, do you remember when... Um, you remember on Seinfeld when uh what was the female character's name? Elaine. She did, she did what's her name? Elaine. Elaine. Remember when she did the dance? That's what I'm imagining. Yeah. So their podcast is a very visual medium. But anyway, look, here's the thing. I'm I'm not sure I know enough to like uh you know coach you on this, but I'm kind of I'm a little concerned that we don't have any evidence either way. I mean, because I could imagine that sometimes being more directive is a better thing, and other times uh, being less directive is a better thing, depending on the skills you want to learn, or you know, the person, or all, all kinds of things. So, can I? Can I? Uh, can wait, I clarify just, one thing though?
0: Okay. So, I'm not saying that one shouldn't be non-directive ever. I'm saying you shouldn't go in always as not directive. Being non-directive is highly useful in certain contexts and in certain relationships. It depends on your goal. Matt, Hmm.
1: what makes you say that?
0: I feel like I'm being coached now, folks. Right now, Will has tilted his head a little to the left. (laughs) Now he's got that beautiful smile of his with the pearly yellow teeth. (laughs) Yellow. (laughs) Anyway, what makes me say that is in terms of what, what what do you clarify?
1: I just, I think, I think you're, I I think you're jumping to conclusions. I'm a little worried. I mean, I agree with you that, you know, you shouldn't have one kind of uh, approach. All right. So I agree with you there, but I'm not sure that you have enough evidence really to completely dismiss this methodology. Now, I do agree if there's no evidence for it, then we should be skeptical. We should be skeptical. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm having trouble finding evidence. And when I pose the question, it becomes a tautological conversation. So I'm, I'm becoming more and more skeptical myself as we go, which is why I'm raising the topic here so show me the data anyone not not will necessarily although i'd love to see will do one of his meta analyses on the impact of coaching will this is a challenge
1: well uh somebody can start a kickstarter campaign and if you get up to like ten thousand dollars i'll do it okay i'll start it tomorrow anyway no but i think we should ask i think you're going in the right direction yeah i want proof I think we ought to ask our listeners what they think of. You heard of this kind of coaching. Is there a name for it? What evidence is there? Are you skeptical too, or is Matt the only one?
0: And if you don't have evidence, why are we engaging in it? Okay. That's all I'm saying. You are being premature in accusing me of jumping to conclusions because I am the one saying... Where are the conclusions? Well,
1: wait a minute. Science always must start with some observations and then a hypothesis. These people are doing something, and they've made the hypothesis that this is working. So now it's our turn to turn the next step in the scientific process and evaluate it look for evidence etc this is
0: problematic will we both know that in our field we have too much junk that's getting perpetuated over and over again with little to no data and this is becoming pervasive that people are putting coaching shingles out with little to no training i mean six months of training versus a psychologist having seven years of training is different. Um, it's, uh, there's no oversight just like we've talked about with trainers. Uh, there's little or no evidence that we can find right now that coaching in general, let alone the type of coaching I described is happening. And yet you want us to put the brakes on and say, Oh, let's let them go until we do some research studies.
1: I'm not saying to let, well, am I saying to let them go? Yeah. Let let them go, but let's be skeptical. I mean, let's do a random controlled trial. Okay. All right. I like the idea of Kickstarter. So, you know, you said we have like 500 or something listeners. If we get, uh, If we get 200 of them, we can put 100 into the uh, chaperone coaching model and we can put 100 into the directive coaching model or the multi-opportunity coaching model, and then we'll see what happens.
0: All right. I say we go. You did a great job interviewing Roger Kaufman. And uh, before we switch over to that interview, is there anything you'd like to say? about Roger, about the conversation you had?
1: Well, Roger is just, he's a living legend, number one, but he's also the most delightful person to talk with. And he's got all these stories. uh, And uh, it's just, and and he's done something really important that all our listeners should know about.
0: So uh, uh, just as a preface, one of the things that I love about Roger is many decades ago, he had an idea that has become at least a very strong value for me and you. And I know Tiagi feels this way as well. And I, I'm so happy that you and Roger are going to talk about that and, and what, it, what it's all for. So uh, just as a preface, shall I switch it over? Yeah, we can
1: uh, let it roll. So Roger, I am delighted to be able to interview you. I went to your website, megaplanning.com, and your resume is there, and it's like 52 pages long or something. <laughs> I'm kidding a little bit, but uh, you are a professor emeritus from Florida State University, You have a PhD and a master's from like some great universities. You've been to NYU and Berkeley and John Hopkins and George Washington and Purdue, et cetera. I noticed you have like 400 publications and 41 books and you've won all these awards and you've been a editor of scientific journals. And uh, not only have you won these awards, but you've even had an award named after you uh, from the International Society for Performance Improvement. They, they created the Roger Kaufman Award for continual achievement of measurable positive societal impact uh, by an individual or organization. So it's really an honor to be able to talk with you.
2: Well, it, it actually is my pleasure. Uh, uh, thank you for overestimating my uh, my background. I've been fortunate enough. In many ways, to be invited to work with good people, uh, good students, lucky enough to be invited uh, to well, Jan and I, my my wife, the wind under my wings, we've been over to a hundred countries, and uh, and lived to tell about it.
1: So, Roger, I wanted to talk to you about this concept of mega. It's a term you've used, and I think you first started talking about it in the 1990s in regard to learning evaluation. You Actually,
2: see? 1979 was the first real publication of it as a book on needs assessment uh, that I did with Fen- Fenwick English. Uh, oh, wow. It was published by EdTech Press. That was the first time that I, I came up with the, the label mega.
1: Wow. So, you know, essentially at first, and I think I'm oversimplifying a bit, you sort of added a, a fifth level to the kirkpatrick four-level model, which you called MEGA, referring to yeah. learning results that sort of lay outside the organization. For example, the benefits created for the organization's customers or society in general. And, and then later, uh, just a few years ago, you wrote a book for managers titled the manager's pocket guide to mega thinking and planning. Yep. And there's, I saw your resume on it. Mega is listed many, many times. You're known for it. I think it's a really important concept. It, particularly your emphasis on societal, uh, benefits or results or goals for improving, uh, what we do in terms of how we influence society, so I wanted to talk to you about it.
2: Okay, uh, the uh, I, actually it's been a bumpy road, uh, and, well, as you you've learned when you started getting into the uh, the LTEM, you know, uh, not everybody loves something different. And, <laughs>
1: That's for sure.
2: <laughs> and uh, the and a lot of you get a lot of attacks with people who are uh, unencumbered with facts and reality. Actually, a very famous guy in our field who publicly said it, said, well, Roger, Smega is a bridge too far. People in the field will not be able to cross it or want to. I I got to this actually with a discussion with our five-year-old son. You know like five years old he said hey dad and he gave me a question and I gave him an answer he said well why and I gave him an answer and he thought about it for a while and he said then why and I gave him another answer and he thought about it and he said well dad why and I realized I was run- running out of reasons and so that started me thinking like you have about uh, transfer uh, you know w- w- why do we do these things know if we training is the solution what's the problem and so it occurred to me that well there's another level of why and it got me to ask the question well if your organization is the solution what's the problem
1: i love that question i want to ask you about that
2: okay and and, and then it dawned on me that well you know everything we use do produce and deliver uh, it either adds value to society or subtracts value and in fact, that phrase came from Dale Brethauer when he was teaching with us in the program we had to the Sonora Institute of Technology. And he said that in his uh, 2006 book in our six-pack series. Is that if you're adding value to society, you're so, or subtracting it. Uh, because that's why we're all here, It's you know. And so, so that's, that's where the mega concept came from. And that's what I've been pursuing. Uh, and uh, the recent work that I've been doing with... Uh, Starting off with Mariano Bernardes and a team in uh, in Cologne for the president of Panama, uh, we're applying this now. We've got uh, uh, records now on six different places. Uh, the most uh, recent is what uh, Mariano Bernardes is doing with uh, Barrio Trantillo, uh, uh, a slum neighborhood in in Buenos Aires, by applying mega and finding out that you can actually transform a a community where people are actually working, making money, and find out they can do better at that than generally stealing.
1: Let's, Let's start from the basics. What is MEGA, first of all? Okay. And why is it important?
2: Okay, in the simplest form, uh, it's let's creating together the kind of world we want for tomorrow's child. And you know, you ask people, you know, what kind of world do you want for yourself, and i will tell you, you know, I want honest politicians. I want teachers that are certified, and uh, you know, all kinds of things. Come to call it Mother's Rule, because this is the kind of world mothers want for their kids. They don't want to rape, murdered, uh, die of infectious disease. Uh, have crippling diseases. Uh, they want them to survive and, and thrive. And so that's what MEGA is about. And that's why I think it's important, is that uh, all of us and our, the organizations we work with are means to societal ends. And if we don't do that alignment uh, with society, uh, if you're not adding value to society, you're subtracting it. So that's why I think it's important.
1: So in in your August... Uh, 2019 article in Performance Improvement, or the Performance Improvement Journal, you wrote this, for mega to be fully beneficial, starting at the societal level is fundamental. When you start strategic thinking and planning with society as the primary client and beneficiary of what you use, do, produce, and deliver, that is mega. Doing so is a hallmark of leadership. Tell me about the leadership part.
2: I think leadership is just simply uh, uh, defining together where, we were he- where we're headed, why we want to get there, and how we know when we've arrived, and enrolling and enlisting people in the organization to, A, that's where we want to go, and we want to go together, and then leaders help people define their individual competencies, and skills and abilities to contribute to that individually, and then so it goes together, so it forms a system which ultimately has value added to external clients in society. And I think that's what leaders do.
1: Well, I used to be a leadership trainer. I used to run a leadership development product line. And I, I kind of like uh, sort of management development. Uh, and I've sort of paid attention to it over the years. But what I, what I heard back in the 1990s is that we should be good leaders to help the company Uh, meet its shareholder obligations, right? There was no talk of mega or societal benefits or anything except those, you know, really the stockholders in some sense. So I I wonder, you know, you you hinted at some pushback you've gotten. Where where does that come from?
2: Well, it comes from the fact that there's a lot of people who have invested in in what they're doing now. Uh, Organizations. organizations uh, generally are are change-adversive unless they get the right incentives. Look at most of the management consultants and big management consulting firms. They have models and algorithms for all this stuff, which is what you were talking about earlier, the shareholder value. And my question to them is shareholder value is good, of course. Now, do you want shareholder value just this quarter or next quarter, or do you want it five years from now or 10 years from now? And shareholder value we can see from the the collapse of many organizations is when they tried to screw the customer uh, that, uh, yeah, you make profits right now, and then all of a sudden they, they drop off the edge of the cliff. So my argument is you have to align stockholder value with societal value added because that's the way you get sustainability of profits.
1: Roger, you wrote this book for managers. Yep. What, what did you want them to do differently than they would otherwise not be doing?
2: I wanted to, to take all their skills, knowledge, and abilities and resources they have now and just reorient them towards the entire value chain.
1: So in your book for managers, you have people think about this question, which I love. If your organization is the solution, what's the problem? Now, I read that, and I, like, started thinking, oh, my gosh, that is so deep. I started thinking about organizations that are well-known for not doing such great things these days. I was thinking about Facebook. So Facebook started uh, as a solution to the problem of people getting together, right? Yeah,
2: dating and finding sexist, uh, uh, good-looking women.
1: Well, that was, yeah, that was even earlier, back in the Harvard days. but. But, but now it seems that the problem it's trying to solve is uh, to support advertisers and uh, to collect data for that. Because of that, it's sort of, you know, it's hurting democracy. It's, you know, allowing ads on it that are untrue. It's sh- sharing people's Political influence, data.
2: political bias. Also, the, uh, Zuckerberg can build a huge place in a why with a huge wall around it, by the way.
1: Oh, I didn't know about that. I, I just love that question. You have any reflections on that? You know, if your organization is the solution, what's the problem?
2: That, that's the ultimate why question. You know, why are you in business? Uh, if, if, you, if it's just for making profits, uh, then you might be you know, subtracting value from society. And ultimately, you'll get punished for that. And I think now, you know, on both sides of the aisle, there's people are saying, wait a minute, Facebook is more powerful than we are. And so they're going to start uh, uh, limiting them.
1: So let me ask you about... Uh, your work with Mariano. You can probably pronounce his last name better than I can, but t- give us some examples of the kind of things you've been doing with Mega uh,
2: there. Mariano Bernardes is a, a fascinating guy, and we started working together, I think it was Citibank of uh, uh, Argentina, and we had a, a meeting with the uh, board of directors and the chief operating officer. And what they were doing is they wanted us to help them developing a training course for the values that the organization had derived. Mariana both looked at each other and we, we, we knew. And I said, well, tell me about your hiring criteria. And I said, what? I said, do you hire people on the basis of their demonstrated skills, knowledge, and attitudes that align with these values? And they said, we didn't think of that. And I said, I said, well, maybe if you just hire and then reinforce on the basis of these values, you don't have to go through a training program. And we had lunch with the board of directors, and uh, we sent them home. Instead of having a probably a year-and-a-half contract, Mariano said, look, let, let's not deal with the symptoms. Let's get down to basics. And Mariano and I uh, started working together then He had a client uh, which was the largest uh, petroleum company in argentina and um, it was his project and he said i want to apply mega to it and uh, we did company went from you know hemorrhaging money to making money and mariano kept data on this and the effects of mega and then they sold it to uh, repsol which is i think a spanish company and they said well we don't want all this mega crap and we watch the profits go down and the problems go up. And then Mariana and I worked with, uh, as I said, the president and the minister of Panama and the minister of tourism to apply mega uh, planning uh, to the transformation of the city of Cologne, which when we got there, 42% of all the buildings in Cologne were condemned. It was run by basically by six gangs and a hundred other gangs. And cruise ships stopped stopped going there because although it was a beautiful colonial city, it wasn't safe. And Mariano said, well, let's apply MEGA. What he did is he went to talk to the gangs. And what he found out that the gangs, but what they were using the money were, is for repairing the places where their families lived. Because um, since they wouldn't pay rent, the landlords wouldn't fix anything. But they were living in there, I mean, crammed in the four-story building might have had 12, 14 families in it. and so they were buying you know blue tarps and things like that. And so Mariano came up with the idea that the uh, steamship companies agreed to is let's get the gangs involved in security. And they had vests and the cruise ships found it safe because they knew where the threats <laughs> of safety were coming from. And actually they converted from making money uh, you know stealing. Uh, to making money being uh, security guards and, uh, and that was an interesting application of, of MEGA.
1: So so, what, what did MEGA do? Like what were the causal factors um, that made MEGA useful in that situation?
2: Well, what happened is that they had hired consulting companies and they were doing affordable housing and they were doing waste collection and they were doing sewers, and, and it all didn't go together. For instance, uh, the brilliant idea of the of housing for the workers ended up being eight miles away from where they worked and there was no infrastructure of transportation. And it was, you know, they, they did a systems approach and not a system approach. So uh, when we got there, we said, look, this whole thing is about the survival and self-sufficiency of everybody there, including the organizations, including... The citizens of that town now how do we get this thing to work together and we ah. actually did an assessment and we got people they prioritized the gaps between current results and the, their desired results so they could see where budget was being spent and they actually got very very committed to it and we got people to say hey yeah you know uh and, and code this is the kind of place we want for our children
1: so 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 i want to and drill down here so So what MEGA did, it seems, I'm an outsider on this, but but what it seems to me that MEGA did was to, it it allowed you to look at the societal benefits and then that focused on the rewards and the whole structure and how it all fit together. Whereas other people before the MEGA part of it, they were looking at the little parts and they weren't, they didn't have a big picture. They weren't focusing on this one big vision of where they were
2: aiming. Exactly
1: it seems like the lesson there for a for-profit company is that you your company does not work alone it's not isolated it's not on an island it's in a community of people it's in a it's in an environment where you rather have fresh water and clean air and things like that and if you don't pay attention to what's going on outside you and i don't mean just you know sponsoring operas mm-hmm. <laughs> and stock no. car races but you know to really think more broadly then you're going to get yourself in trouble
2: sure and and you put your finger exactly on, on what are the uh, uh, the ways in people get out of it you know they have uh, give their employees one day off to fix benches or they give playgrounds or uh, they have food drives and and this is this is just dealing with the symptoms and not the causes And what it does is allow them to say, well, you know, I'm doing social responsibility kinds of things. and But they have missed the point of the holistic piece of this. And that is exactly what you said. You know, we're all together in this community and this society, and we have to be adding value to it for us to be viable. And the people in the organization have to see that they're going to survive and thrive and uh, not just be exploited. It's going yeah. to be interesting to see what happens with Amazon and the way they're running their uh, their uh, compliance uh, centers. Apparently, they're getting a lot of static for, you know, driving people into the ground. And how long can you keep that up? And the answer is, uh, I think, not very long. Uh,
1: yeah, their, but, uh, their injury rate is like double the industry average, apparently. <laughs> That's yeah. another story. Great. But I... Um, uh, 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 you know what I would love to hear your thoughts on, maybe you could write an article about this, is how can MEGA help democracies around the world right now which seem to be collapsing under the weight of all kinds of problems? So Roger, I want to thank you. This has been amazing um, getting to talk to a living legend. So thank you very much. Uh, you know, maybe we'll have you back to solve some of the other issues uh, in the future. So
2: thank you, Roger. I'm flattered that you did it. And and by the way, continue your 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 important work. Uh, you're you're one of the few people who give a damn and really look after. Uh, rigor. Uh, and uh, so uh, you're a hero of mine for doing that. And thank you for the work you do.
1: Roger, you're going to bring tears to my eyes. But Thank you very much.
2: Okay. Thanks for inviting me. All right. You take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Gosh, Will, that was just great. Really good, man.
1: I, he really did choke me up uh, there at the end, I have to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Will, I, I, we tease each other, and and I know I do annoy you most days,
1: but uh, I feel the same way about you. Oh, <laughs> Uh, You know, it's so wonderful that we're recording this on a Friday afternoon.
0: Um, Well, what's nice is I love seeing how many times I can get you to turn bright red on the video. So, (laughs) and that's number seven.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it, it, it is interesting, you know, this idea that we should focus not just on business results, but also societal impact. Is it's transformative. It changes everything, and uh, you know his argument. I think is that if a business wants to be successful, it has to think beyond its own boundaries to the community and uh, situations and the people, the, all the stakeholders that intersect with it. And uh, I think that's a very formidable argument.
0: You know, there are a lot of companies that are are talking about sustainability. Uh, and originally, sustainability was about going green. But now people are talking about sustainability in the, in the sense of how do you better the community around you? How do you better the world? How do you leave a footprint that's going to be helpful and contribute to our overall well-being as a society? And, and I think that is indeed a beautiful message.
1: Yeah, you know, one other thing that's happened, it just happened this summer. Uh, was all these business leaders got together and they basically came out with a statement and saying the thing we used to do to focus only on business results was wrong. It was unethical and that leaders and organizations should not do that. It's not good for the bottom line and it's not good for the country, the world, etc.
0: Well, I think that's all great until until we see a lot of companies today not adhering to that too, right? So, so on one hand, I, I want to applaud the companies that that are at least espousing that, but there are companies that we won't mention because we don't want to get sued that are doing everything they can to pocket them their their shareholders and and. Uh, it's often at the the adverse uh, uh, with adverse results to the community abroad and and I think that's horrible and so I think this is one of the reasons why Roger ah, is Roger a legend because of this or is Roger Rogers a legend for many things and right he, and he is right and yeah. so this is the thing you and you and I love to talk about but um, and so I'm so glad you talked to him about it. But Roger, Roger's done so many
1: great things that this is just one of them. Uh, well, we should probably remind people that we have a listener page, and That's we true. welcome you. We hope you'll go there, and you can even call up and you can rant about something. You can sing praises of somebody in the industry. You can do whatever you damn please. We don't That's have right. to air it. But we just want your voice on that machine. So and if you do,
0: the... Will won't cut you off and interrupt you like he does me.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's a good political move. <laughs>
0: so, yes, on our listener page can be found at truthinlearning.com. I will make a shameless plug. Go to our iTunes page and rate us, preferably a 5 out of 5. Write some comments preferably really nice things uh, because that increases our visibility when people do searches uh, for podcasts similar to ours. So help us out. Give us a rating. Also Spotify has a system and
1: other podcast platforms have systems. So my worst, I was, uh, I was at a industry meeting And somebody was going through a case study of learning evaluation. And the bulk of what they had done was to survey learners about the experience. And what they did was they asked questions. And then some of the questions were related then to level one, right? Those were about the instructor and the facilities and stuff. And then some were related to level two. And those were about, you know... You learn a lot, etc. Some are related to three. Uh, you know, maybe you're going you to be able to put this into practice, etc. And some are related to levels four and five as well. So, the problem with this is that if you ask learners questions, it's level one. It's not level two, it's not level three, it's not level four or five. If you ask people questions, That's the only input you have. You are at level one on the Kirkpatrick Excel. You're at tier three on LTEM. It's one of the biggest lies in learning evaluation and people have to stop doing it. The best I have to say are all the debunkers out there. You know, I just, there's so many people. If you go on LinkedIn now, people are always, Tagging me about, hey, I did this, I debunked this thing, and here it is. And um people are spreading the word about what works and what doesn't work. What has science behind it, what only seems to have science behind it. Um somebody today even called out one of the most widely known people in the D universe and dinged them for their statement, um, which was great. I loved it.
0: Nice. Nice. My best is simply that I had the opportunity to meet Miriam Nealon on LinkedIn, finally, after months and months of seeing her interact with you. So Miriam's book with uh, Paul Kirshner is called Evidence-Informed Learning Design, Creating Training to Improve Performance. You can pre-order it right now. The paperback is available for a much reduced rate compared to the hardcover but the hardcover will last for a century. Anyway, I highly recommend it, although I should probably read it first, but uh, I'm so excited by the descriptions and the blurbs I've seen that uh,
1: I already have pre-ordered it and, and very excited about it. Well, I, I have read every word of it, and, and it is great, so I highly recommend it. Excellent, excellent. So, my worst...
0: My worst is I've been spending all this time talking about debunking. You've been spending all this time talking about debunking and, and our friends Clark and Guy and Julie and Patty and everyone else have been talking a lot about evidence-based approaches to learning and so forth. And I know people who have sat through all of our spiels and yet the next day, the next week, I see them posting on things that obviously have been debunked by many, many people, not just you or others, but by many, many people, even after they've been theoretically trained and have theoretically embraced the notion of evidence-based approaches. I'm not here to call out their names or, 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 or nail them for it, but I just, it's depressing that people will speak the praises of evidence-based learning and evidence-based models and the need for evidence. And then very next day, post something, share something with a client, do something for a client that is in direct
1: opposition to that. You know, nobody's perfect, right? You know, I mean... I mean, <laughs> all right, all right. I know, I know. You know. Wow, I don't attack you your. Separate. I don't attack your worst. <laughs> <laughs> I so. know. You've got to separate the art from the artist. <laughs>
0: so anyway, folks, I I want to fully disclose that Will and I are going into
1: couples counseling. <laughs> <laughs> well we would we would go into couples counseling but we can't afford it
0: all right and that concludes this episode of the learning empire oh wait truth in learning